Chris and Will here, and you know, you guys, we have a challenge for you, and it's all about the red shirt. That's right. It's been a symbol of pride since 1991. In 2020, we're spreading the message of diversity, equality, and kindness with the red shirt challenge across the globe. On June 6th, join the world in wearing your red shirt and help us bring us all together hand in hand. Go to kindredpride.org to register. Join us June 6th with your red shirt. Show it off. Hashtag RSPD. It's the show that makes us talk. What do you call a computer that sings? I don't know. What would that be? Adele. <laughs> what about our life? With Chris and Will, season two. You know, I have to start off by saying, how is your quarantine time coming? Yay! Now that the whole world <laughs> is pretty much at a standstill for good reason, I guess. Yeah. But uh, yes, how are you? Welcome to another great episode of What About Our Life with Chris and Will. Hi. We are sorry for the delay, but of course, with all the things going on in the current world at the moment, we had to change things up a little bit so we are kind of changing this episode up just a tad we're not in the normal studio like we usually are we're at home yeah a little different yes mm -hmm. we are at home we are bored shitless <laughs> literally can't find anything to do and then when we do find something to do nothing is open around here so you have to go find something else to do. And even though we have projects and work that we can do, we just can't find motivation to do it. Yeah. It's just like, I don't know how to explain it. It's crazy. It's crazy, but then it's sort of boring, but then it's not. And then it bounces and then it's, yeah. It's just crazy. It's crazy. But this week we are talking about real people and real times Plus, our inner circle, which is an amazing topic to have right now. Of course. Because everybody is going panicky on social media and going crazy with all this virus stuff going on. So it's really good to take the time to sit there and share a little bit of our point of view mm -hmm. in a sense. So let's kind of start at our point of view for a little bit. Now, here's the disclaimer. This is our point of view. Doesn't have to be recommended. Is not recommended for anyone. You can do it if you want. You don't have to either way. Your life is your life. This is our life. This is how we do our thing. So as with anything in life, be responsible for yourself. And you will be able to get through anything. Absolutely anything on your own. Now, first and foremost, is everything that's going on important? Yes, it is. It is scary. It's a, There's a lot of fear out there because there's a lot of unknown. Absolutely no argument here on that point. But take it from a person that does have a weak immune system to an extent. I do have heart issues and heart problems. So, of course, my doctors themselves have said be responsible and be aware of what's going on. Because, yes... If I do catch it, there's a possibility it could harm me in a worse way. But at the same time, you know what, guys? For years, Willie and I have been very responsible with our life yeah. and with the people around us. And we take care of ourselves really well. We take a lot of vitamins. We exercise. We limit stress and get put ourselves in positions that help us get through anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've lived in the car for many years before. We've gone through poverty. Everything that you can imagine, we've seen crisis like you ain't ever seen before. Yep. Now, granted, does that take it away from another person that has experienced 
harsher crises than that? No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But what I'm saying is, you guys, you have to live normally. Yeah. And also in saying that, too, I mean, just keep thinking and believing in who you are. And just don't let any distractions get in your way. Because no. it's just... Because one creates another, and then it yes, goes on, it, it goes on. It does. And you know what? You do what you have to to feel normal. Yes. And I know normal isn't a norm, but if you continue with that, then you know what? You're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. And be responsible. At yeah. the end of the day, if your normal includes you you going out and partying, and you're usually with a group of people, obviously that has to change a little bit. But be responsible for it. Yeah. I mean, be note that, okay, well, if, hey, if I can take a break from it for a little while, then I will do that. Yeah. Um, you know, all the panicking, everything that's going on, it's, it's really not necessary. Mm -hmm. Educate yourself. Yes. Please educate yourself. Know what your body is telling you. Yes. Know what's around you mm -hmm. and you will be completely fine. At this point, the officials in any part of the world who is running that country or any part of who's running your world, let them make the call on what is legally best for you. Now, I am, again, not saying people going to beaches or bars or any of that other stuff is right or wrong. I'm just saying, you know, as I've had many discussions before, the mm. name calling. Yes. And calling people out on those that doesn't decisions. Help that doesn't all. help. That doesn't, that's unnecessary. Yes. Let them make the decisions for themselves. Let them be, be responsible. You be responsible for yourself. Yes. It was funny because somebody had commented on that and said, that's the problem with the world is that we're not taking care of others. We're busy taking care of ourselves. And absolutely, that is false. Yeah. The problem with the world today is that we're not taking care of ourselves. We're too busy taking care of other people. Thank you. You have to take care of yourself first mm -hmm. before you can go bother with somebody else. Yes. Because at the end of the day, it is not your job to teach them how to grow up. Mm -hmm. If you have kids, that's a different story. If you have an elderly family member or parent or somebody that has something that they can't necessarily make the decisions that normal people like ourselves can, that's a different scenario. But if you have a regular everyday mojo that can go out, make a living, go have fun, they are responsible for knowing what's right and what's wrong. And that is the problem is we're too busy expecting the world to teach us the difference between right and and wrong. And ladies and gentlemen, if you are not a teenager or you are not a child, you should have learned the difference between right and wrong a long time ago. So now is not the time for the world to be teaching that to you. So be responsible, be educated, and stop the panic. Period. Mm -hmm. I know that may be a little harsh, but we're sometimes, in real times right yeah, now. Yeah, sometimes in like what I've gone through in my own journey, the harshness it's kind of, well, no, it, it is what is, it, it has to happen because if you, if you don't pay attention, if you don't listen accordingly, and what else is going to get your attention in the proper manner, in the right way? So if you're not going to listen, whatever's going on, it's going to follow and you're going to have to some way have to either deal with it. Or you can say, hey, there are some, some, some things that happen, but I do make my own choices and I am responsible. That's right. You know, I said it best today when we went walking with friends today and I sat there and I go, you know what? Fate knows when it's my time. Fate knows when it's their time. Fate knows when it's your time. So at the end of the day, I'm going to put that in fate's hands and let fate decide when it's time for me. And what I'm going to do is live my life in the meantime, because that's what fate wants me to do. And that's what I encourage everyone else to do. That's what real times is all about. And then it kind of goes into real people. Mm -hmm. You know, you learn a lot from different people during crises. You learn a lot when you people watch. Oh, you yeah. learn a lot about people when things don't go right, don't go wrong, especially during a political year. 
you learn a lot about all the different opinions. And sometimes it's heartbreaking because Mm -hmm. those individuals that you, you really hoped was a a good set for you in your life. You start to learn, "Mm, wow, there's something hidden back there that I don't want to be a part of. So you, you, you kind of have to force yourself to get out of it. So you start to learn the real people and that comes into your, your inner circle, yeah. I guess, because you know, you have to, you, you have to understand your inner circle is a big part of your life. And what that means is, you know, who do you want standing next to you in a sense? Who can you trust? Like, for example, I'll give you a good example. If you are in a hospital room, and you had to choose a certain amount of people to be in that hospital room to make choices for you and be there for your lasting moments, who would they be? Because who would you trust? Who would know you more and better than anyone else out there? That's your inner circle. Those are the people that you can always count on when things go in a different direction. Though you may have some differences and though you may not agree with each other on certain facts, but you can always trust that no matter how many disagreements that you have, you're always going to return to one another at any given time. And it can be a group of people. It can be one person. It can be another person. Some people will argue with me and say, well, it should be your spouse. Not necessarily. You can share that inner circle bond like that with numerous people. It's never been said that your spouse has to be the one and only that holds the golden key. And if it's a should, then what are we saying? You know, it should be this and should be that. It's not, it's not that. It's just see it what it is. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the same thing with family. Family doesn't hold the golden key to your to your life, neither. Just because they brought you in this world, ladies and gentlemen, um, legally, they can't take you out of it. So legally, you have the right to make the decisions and choices on your own. So live your life the way you need to live it and what's best for you. And you have to be responsible for the things that you do and say. Mm-hmm. If you are begging for attention, you've got to take responsibility of the fact of the matter that you could get backlash. And the biggest thing that in times, especially right now, the one thing that I find that is very humorous <laughs> is most of these people that are out there causing all of these different issues, they're hiding behind social media. Yeah. And like, for example, when I commented on something and it went from one direction to the next, I personally messaged that person and said, well, you know, if you want to have this debate, let's talk. Let's let's understand each other. No, I'm good. Oh, okay. So basically, you need an audience to sit there and have a man-to-man conversation. No, I'm good. Well, then those people right there, they have their own internal issues. They have their own problems. They have, they're, they're wanting something out of that. And if you continue to contribute that you're giving them, giving them that platform. So don't give them a platform. If you don't agree with it, stay out of that platform, be vocal, be strong, be who you are, be a part of the solution, not part of the chaos. There you go. Period. That's just the way it goes. So that's real people, real times, especially what's, what's going on inner circle. Of course, um, you know, we've had to stay away from watching media, We've had to stay. I mean, we are part of the media guys, but I just don't find it to be necessary to continue the panic. Again, the the disclaimer is it's important. It's a, it's a very thing that we should pay attention to. We should follow some of the guidelines and advice that is out there, but at the same time, panicking everyone and panicking everything and going hoarding the stores and doing all that is nonsense, guys. It is nonsense. Your problem right now is not just this virus. It's going to be afterwards Mm -hmm. because once we get back on our feet, it's going to be a while before the economy picks itself up to where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. So let's start avoiding these bigger problems and creating solutions because all the positive energy that we need needs to stay in, in in this world to get rid of this. Yes. So let's stay positive with it. So, Best of luck of all of this with you guys. And I can't tell you enough. You, you, you know, our hearts are with everyone dealing with this personally, uh, who's been affected by it, whether it's a loss of the job or no job at all, or, uh, those who have 
friends or loved ones or, or knows anybody that has the actual virus or, or pass from it, our hearts are with you. Um, but again, like we always say, be sure to love yourself and the world will love you in return. Yes. We need that love right now. So we need to show it out there and get rid of the panic. Those that want to panic, they can find a platform for themselves. For the rest of us, let's find the platform that keeps it clean and keeps it neat. That's the way we need to keep with it. So in any sense today, we have a... Gosh, how would you describe him? Um, he's a very talented man. Yes. Uh, he has been around the block with many stories. He's been a infamous interviewer of his time. He's won several, several Emmys. Uh, I believe that he is the only one that has won multiple Emmys in this in different categories. Because uh, he he was he was an interviewer, he was a newscaster at one yes. point. Mm-hmm. He also directed and wrote the infamous JFK assassination documentation or documentary, I should say. Yeah. Um, so that's very interesting. He hosted the 1970s Real People show. He's interviewed some of the most controversial uh, celebrities and public figures of our time. He talks about that with us. And gives us a different perspective of it. So today's show is not a controversial show. Absolutely not. It's a very educational show that talks about how things have changed over the years. Mm -hmm. And being that he's been a part of the media back in the day, he does, of course, have his own opinions. And, of course, he has his own um, facts and things that he he has. His own journey. His own journey is an experience. Yeah. So, um no judgment there. Yes. His new book that he has out right now is called Your Mother's Not a Virgin. Very interesting read. <laughs> right. What a title. I mean, but Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. He is known as the godfather of reality television from back in the day. He's also appeared in Get Smart, uh, Sanford and Sons, CSI, um, and many, 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 many more. Mm-hmm. Who are we talking about? We are talking about the infamous john barber and we are so excited to have him on our show today because this will help explain the change over the course of the years with the whole understanding of fake news and all that nonsense that's been going around apparently it's been going around for a very long time so he's going to give us a different perspective no judgmental at all this is not a controversial controversial episode i can't talk but this is a wonderful educational episode, and we are so happy to have Basically him getting just a glimpse into, you know, back then and right now and, you know, seeing what's happening, too. Getting a, like you had said, a different perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are looking forward to it. So sit back, relax. John Barber is coming up. We are honored to have with us today five-time Emmy Award winner, John Barber. Oh my gosh, I'm doing terrific. How are you? Hi, we're doing great. We are definitely doing well. How is, are you in California? Uh, I'm in uh, Las Vegas. That's where, oh. that's where I live. Oh, nice. Well, how is the weather in Vegas? Well, today it's a little glum. Uh, we don't have overcast days very often, but we certainly have one now. <laughs> and where are you guys? We are in Orlando. We're in Florida. Mm-hmm. Oh, how terrific. What's it like there? You know what? Uh, I would have to say we're having a gloomy day, too. It's not uh, not really sunshining, but it's not cold. It's not hot. It's in between. Yep. Well, years and years ago, I worked there. Uh, forget what the place was called. Uh, oh, my God. Hollywood something or other. And I used to go out and play golf, and it used to kill me because I would have to change my shirt every two or three holes. It was just so muggy. Oh, I believe uh-huh. it. Anyway, it's wonderful to talk to you. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you have such an extraordinary past. Um, so let's let's kind of go into that. What made you want to work in the media specifically? Jack Parr. Does the name ring a bell? I do, absolutely. Uh, Jack Parr was uh, one of the very first hosts of The Tonight Show, and by far the very, very best. 
not only did he do a great monologue at the top of the show, and Carson did a nice monologue, but unlike Johnny Carson, Jack Parr was an interesting person because he was interested in his guests, and Johnny Carson was not an interesting person, and he was only good when he was with celebrities. He could not handle intellectuals or artists or authors the way Parr did, and he became my hero because I came from a severely broken family, severely dysfunctional family. I was born in the Salvation Army Charity Ward in Toronto, and in 19... uh, 39 to get away from this household. My father joined the Canadian Army to get to the peace and quiet of World War II. And my mother brought uncles into the house like they were grapes. They came in bunches. And they came to bed with her and food with booze with her, but mostly they beat her. And, you know, when you come from that kind of a background, you know, everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to have a family, which I didn't have. Uh-huh. You don't do good things as a kid to get attention. I mean, you don't end up playing the concert violin or piano. You end up getting in right. trouble with the law, which I did. And I was on the streets from the time I was six and dropped out of high school at 15. And I ran away illegally to the United States when I was 17 to become a go to Vegas. where I am now, strangely enough, to become a professional gambler. But on television, I fell in love with Jack Parr. Because Jack Parr actually talked to people. And I watched it, and I was spellbound because I didn't know people talked to one another. I thought they yelled at one another or they punched one another. And so I thought, well, he got this show because he was a stand-up comic. And that's why I became a stand-up comic. Would you have to say, uh, well, let me ask you this one. Uh, Who would you say the best comedian you've ever worked with would be oh my god each was wonderful and unique in his own way and in in my autobiography the autobiography is called your mother's not a virgin one of the reasons i love the title is it's a very uncomfortable truth and a lot of people that jack nicholson said in a few good men you can't handle the truth yep it is an uncomfortable truth and the subtitle is the bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who joined the face, who changed the face of American television. I knew them all. My mentor was Red Fox. I'm a young white kid, this wasp. And how is it that Red Fox became my mentor? Red Fox could not work in television. He was the, he worked what they call the chitlin circuit. But my wife, who sang with one of the great jazz pianists, Earl Father Hines, was a friend of Red Fox and a friend of Dick Gregory. My first comedy album is called It's Tough to Be White. Dick Gregory did the liner notes. And when I got my first variety show on local television, I was the first one to put Red Fox on the air, which wow. led to his getting Sanford and Son. That's his real name, John Sanford. Uh-huh. And he called himself Fred because that was the name of his older brother who died, and he loved his older brother. But I knew them all. And really, really well. And the stories about them in the book are amazing. Lenny Bruce spent his last few days with me. Bob Hope called me at NBC after I said on the air he was becoming the J. Edgar Hoover of humor and, and should retire if he's 65, like people if they work for General Motors. you got to retire at 65. Then Bob Hope, if he's not funny anymore, should retire. And he called. Oh. And we had this unbelievable conversation on the phone. Wow. It was the, uh, next to Charles Chaplin, the biggest comedian in American history. And it ended up that he just wanted to talk to somebody. Uh-huh. And he ended up coming and doing it on one of my shows. You can Google my site. Yeah. JohnBarber, com, And you just Google John Barber and Bob Hope's Christmas show. Rather than entertaining the troops one year, he decided to come on my show. The first time Bob Hope ever did an unscripted interview that was serious, and yet he turned out to be the most charming he ever was in the air. And Rodney Dangerfield, who quit, quit the business when he was 44 years of age, we became very, very close early on. Buddy Hackett, always you see. I knew them all. 
and Dick Gregory, who could have been bigger than Cosby in all of them. He was the black Bob Hope in quite by accident, and he gave it up because he wanted to work in the civil rights movement with Dr. King. All of these great stories are in the book. Very so nice. they're all special. The, the, the two that I, I would say were the wittiest off of the cuff were uh, Jackie Mason and uh, Red Fox. Uh, when I first uh, got the idea to do Real People, I had it with a guy named Danny Arnold, who was the co-creator of Barney Miller. He had a deal with ABC, and I was going to do it at ABC. And I wanted Richie Pryor to be my Byron Allen, to be my co-host. And he was in jail at the time because he, he'd punched at an NBC executive and the IRS was waiting to arrest him. So, so justifiably, the head of programming said, that guy's never getting on this network. And they dropped past on the show. And I only got real people on the air quite by accident. And it became the most successful show in American history and the first reality show. I was going to hire Jackie Mason as my consumer advocate on the original uh, Real People, but he got uh, he 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 could make more money doing his stand-up uh, 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 talking to major corporations. But all of these fabulous insights are in the book. So tell me, going into your your interviews that you've done, obviously you've had some uh, controversial guests and in interviews that you've uh, went through over the course of the years. Um, one in particular that comes to mind is Jane Fonda. What would you say yeah. about her particular incident that she had way back in the past? That's a very, very good question because it brings up something that Americans don't even know ever existed in the United States media, uh -huh. which no longer exists. And that is that we once had a thing called the fairness doctrine. Right. That meant if, if you were a politician who, uh, um, let's say you were a Republican and you could get on a, a television show for 15 minutes. If you were a, a Democrat who saw that or a socialist, if you could get 5% of the votes, like Bernie Sanders, you could call up and ask for equal time and get it. Right. That no longer exists. And that's why in those days you never had the Rush Limbaugh's of the world or the, uh, the oh, uh, Hannity's of the world and all these opinion people, opinion heads of the world, these talking heads, because if you put somebody on like that in those days, you would have to give somebody else of the opposite side equal time. Again, it doesn't exist. Right. At the time, this is a very, very good question. Jane Fonda, as you know, was getting the nickname Hanoi Jane. Uh-huh. And, and she was very, very violently opposed to the Vietnam War. Right. And the reason she became so outspoken. She was a good friend of a French director named Roger Vadim. So she's in Europe and she's talking against the war privately. And Roger says, well, if you believe it so much, get out there and fight, fight against it. And it was a fake war. Jim Garrison pointed that out. There was no Gulf of Tonkin resolution. No Vietnamese boats tried to sink the American fifth fleet. It was all a lie as was Iraq a lie. Right. We all know that. Okay. But in any event, she comes out, and now everybody wants her and Muhammad Ali in prison. Now, America looks back. Everybody in America is a hero after the fact. Uh -huh. Truth is always sacrifice on the altar of ambition. And it's the ambition of everybody in the media to get ahead. So when Muhammad Ali says, I'm not going to Vietnam to kill yellow people when my problem is white people in the United States, they wanted him either shot or in prison. And only one person would put him on uh, on television at the time, and that was Howard Cassell and Jack Parr. And I put him on the air for a whole hour and gave him a voice for a whole hour live. Anyway, Jane Fonda is, wants to come on and talk against the Vietnam War. And she walks into the studio with uh, Mark Lane, dismembered legally, the Warren Report, which was published in 1964, claiming that Oswald killed John Kennedy, when indeed there was ample proof that he did not. I mean, paraffin tests done that day proved that he never fired a rifle or a bullet. 
And it's all in a magnificent documentary called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And J. Edgar Hoover lied about the results of that. Mark Lane wrote Rusted Judgment, and, and millions of people bought it. It was not published in the United States. It was published in England. With a uh, with bestseller over there, they had to print it here, and it created all of these people that really began to investigate the fraud that was the Warren Commission. That, uh, Jane Fonda and Mark Lane were dating, and I had read Mark's book, so when he came with, in, in with Miss Fonda, I was stunned, and I was so glad to meet him because his book was so interesting. And Jane was very, very rigid, and I have to tell you this, because it's honest, and I tell it in the story, I was surprised at how hairy she was. She had very hairy arms and very hairy legs, and I have to tell you that for a reason. When, about 10 minutes before airtime, she is talking to me about, and quite angrily, about the war. And I said, Miss Fonda, as a person, I totally agree with you. It is a, it is a, it is a crime. Johnson is a war criminal. McNamara is a war criminal. All these people are war criminals, but I can't say that up the air. There's a fairness doctrine, and that means that, that somebody else would get equal time, and after you're on the air, somebody else will get equal time. But could I tell you something? I can't give you advice, but I will make an observation. Just from what I've learned from being in America and knowing people from the time I was on the street as a kid, human beings do not reason. They are not reasoning creatures. They are emotional creatures. Right. And if they do not like the messenger, they won't listen to the message. And you scream at people. And if you scream at people, they're not going to like you. Now, you can utter all the truths you want, but you don't have to scream them. Yep. You can. She, she said, I don't understand what you're talking about. And I said, well, let me demonstrate to you what I'm talking about. So what I did is I held up my left hand and I put up two fingers in the B sign. And I said, how many fingers are in my left hand? She looked at me like I was stupid. And she said, two, of course. And then I screamed at her. The vilest, and I can't repeat it on the air, but it's all in the book. The filthiest language I could think of. And calling her a hairy commie bitch was how I ended it. Wow. And I held up five fingers. I held up five fingers in my right hand. All right, you Harry, come here, bitch. How many fingers are in my right hand? And she could not answer. She looked at me with loathing. I thought I thought she was going to walk out. And there was a silence in the studio because people heard me. And then I put it down and I said, "All I've got to say is just talk to me the way you would talk to me in your front room." Mm -hmm. She came on my show. She was never better because I said to her, you know, 80% of all Americans are going to support the president. Oh, God forbid the president's a liar. Right. And I said, then maybe 20% are on your side and there are going to be a few in the middle. You want to convince a few in the middle and some of the 80% that think the president is not lying, that maybe he is lying and he is lying, but you cannot scream. I said, just listen to Ralph Nader. I mean, Ralph has a lot to be angry about, but he's a perfect gentleman all the time. And he got laws changed because he's a gentleman. We now have seatbelts because he knew how to talk to Congress. When they had tried, General Motors hired hookers to try to entrap Nader. That would make anybody angry except Ralph Nader. So right. she not only was brilliant, she asked me afterwards if she would come to her house over the weekend for dinner to meet her husband, Tom Hayden because she wanted me to write jokes for him because he was running for office in California. And so I did for two years. Nice. Oh. Wow. So what do you say about um, how it's kind of referred to today as fake news? What is your opinion about that? Well, it's, it's no question. exists. Listen, uh, Mark Twain said this a hundred years ago with America's first fake war. And the first fake war was a Spanish-American war, and Mark Twain wanted to know why we were going over there to the Philippines to steal their natural resources and kill 200,000 innocent people. And Mark Twain said, if you do not read America's newspapers, you're uninformed. But if you do, 
You're misinformed. We have been misinformed since the murder of John Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963. And the reason I made the second film, I became accidentally, you know, the weird thing about my life, I came to the United States at 17 to be a gambler. I was deported a year later. I was deported from Hollywood when I was 29 and writing a screenplay, my first screenplay for a movie that Sinatra was going to produce, and I was deported then. And I got my citizenship papers in 1977 presented to me by United States Congressman John Tunney. And how is it possible that some kid who comes from this background ends up changing the entire face of American television with real people. And it all happened by accident, becoming Frank Sinatra's private writer for four years, happened by accident, meeting Jim Garrison and becoming his Boswell, happened by accident. I must tell you, all the horrible things that happened in my life were things that were well-planned. But when it comes to fake news, I was inspired to do the second Garrison film, the American media in the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which, as we speak, is the biggest runaway documentary hit on Amazon, and it only costs $2. Nobody's heard about it, but hundreds every week go to watch it for $2. Uh, it's only word of mouth, because that's how the truth travels now in America, by word of mouth, because right. you can't hear it on the radio, and you can't see it on television. But I was inspired when Donald Trump was running with Republicans for the presidency or to become a candidate, he brought up fake news. I had never heard that expression, but I knew it existed because when I was under contract to Westinghouse to replace Merv Griffin, my producer was to be Roger Ailes. And Roger became the president of Fox News. And he told me in those days, because I was always interested in the news because I do get political humor. And he said to me then, when he was a young, thin, good-looking guy, he said to me, John, it's not what you put on television news that changes the world. It's what you don't put on the news that changes the world. And that's why we get no news anymore. Anyway, I thought, I'm going to go back. I interviewed Jim Garrison, September 5th, 1981, for three hours. And now that I had the number one show in America with real people, now I'm going to really tell Jim Garrison's story on NBC. And it was sabotaged by George Slaughter, who was the owner of uh, real people. He deliberately libeled and slandered uh, Garrison. He should, NBC should have lost their license. Slaughter should have been sued and sent to the poorhouse. And it, it didn't happen. All that story is in the book. But I went back and I looked at Mr. Garrison's interview. And he sounded like Donald Trump. And I said, well, I've got to tell a story about the birth and purpose of fake news, which began before the murder of John Kennedy. Because the, first, the second really big fake war was the Cold War. Now, you might think, oh, John's nuts to say that. Jim Garrison says on camera, John, the Russians lost 25 million people and the Nazis destroyed half their infrastructure they had no way to be an enemy of the United States of America. He said, the biggest enemy to the United States then was peace. And uh, Dwight Eisenhower went on camera, his last speech, and warned us of the perils of the military-industrial complex, which runs America today in the person of the Central Intelligence Agency. In the movie, you see... Senator Frank Church in 1976 questioning Richard Helms, the head of the CIA. Right. And he asked him, how many members, um, how many CIA agents are, are there working in the American media? And that's CBS and NBC and CBS and even Reader's Digest. And Helms said 400. 400 who are writing the news at the height of the Vietnam War. And the reason for... It's a, a project called Project Mockingbird. They infiltrated, and every newspaper and radio station and television station in America let the Central Intelligence Agency run their foreign policy news in order to create fake wars. 
Because if you have peace, how many uh, cars can you manufacture? How many, uh, uh, well, you can manufacture a new one every year. How many television sets? How many radios? How many vacuum cleaners? But you can demolish a $10,000 bomb in one second and keep manufacturing them for years. We have twice the military budget we have now than we did during the Second World War. And we have no enemies. And it's all, it's all in the film. So my question is, uh, I'm quoting Mark Twain again. Mark Twain said, you know the difference between a cat and a lie? A cat only has nine lives. A lie lives forever. And we're living that forever lie now. The murder of John Kennedy is a cold case solved by the House Select Committee in 1979, solved by Jim Garrison, but it's all locked up in the Justice Department. And that is the key to everything that has gone wrong in the United States. The murder of Bobby Kennedy and the murder of Martin Luther King. Do you know that Coretta King hired a lawyer named William Pepper and a couple of years ago brought a civil suit against the U.S. government for conspiring to murder her husband and the father of her children. And guess what? Not one black newspaper would cover the trial, which she won. She could have gotten millions in the settlement. And guess how much she asked for? She asked for $1,000 is what it cost to bury her husband. She was not in it for the money. She said, I'm in it for the truth that you finally admit that you guys and the FBI murdered my husband. Now, I don't get into a lot of that in the book, but you know, maybe 4% of it is in the book. Mostly, I'm telling these great show business stories, but more important that the introduction to the book is written by a guy named Donald Jeffries, who's got best-selling books with forwards by Ron Paul. Uh-huh. In the introduction, he says, the best book ever written in the English language is David Copperfield. And John Barber's book is David Copperfield Goes to Hollywood. And I must tell you, you you know, I'm the first person that was gone on the gong show. So you can go to those five pages and just read that. And then I had this late night dinner with George Burns after I did the best documentary ever made about a performer, Ernie Kovacs Television's original genius. And George Burns told this wonderful story about how Lucille Ball accidentally got to own her show and buy a studio called Desilu and become the most powerful woman in television. It all happened by accident. And all of these great, great stories are in the book. So you don't have to read this. It's a happy, sad story. You know, it starts off like David Copperfield and Oliver Twist, and then it ends up like Neil Simon. Right. Very nice. Very nice. So what would you, this is in the book, I'm sure. Um, What about your time with Frank Sinatra? Tell me about Frank Sinatra. How was he? Uh, uh, When I met, uh, the first time I saw Sinatra, I was 17. I was on the train bound for Las Vegas. There was an accident, and I thought the cops had called ahead or immigration called ahead and said, you got this illegal in there, Johnny Barber, we got to arrest him. So I got off the train, took a bus to uh, Lake Tahoe, and got, went into the Calneva Lodge. And if you have a copy of the book, on the front of the book, there's a, a picture of me in a blue suit, black and white picture. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and the year was 19... Uh, 1950, I was 17 years of age, and I go in, and, and, and I'm wearing a Stetson. That's the only black and white picture of me that I had, other than those that are uh, in the Toronto Police Department or the Immigration Service. But I go into the Calneva Lodge, and I start to gamble. And uh, the reason I buy the Stetson is I want to look like I'm older than, 20, older than 17. And people are staring at me. But they're not staring at me, they're looking around me. Right. And I turn around, and in through the front door comes Frank Sinatra with his overcoat draped over his shoulder like an Italian superman, and he's arm-in-arm with Sam Giancana, who was a mafia chief of Chicago. And the reason this kid knew that is it was on the front page of the newspaper I left on the train. A week earlier, I had seen him in the Jerome Kern story, a musical called Till the Clouds Roll By, 
And at the end of the film, he's standing on a white pedestal in a white tuxedo singing Old Man River. He's walking right past me, and then 20-some-odd years later, I become his private writer by accident. Okay, I, I, I became the first person on the news to do movie reviews. And as a matter yes. of fact, I'm the only one uh, during the days of uh, equal time because a review of a, di- a movie I did called Southern Green I was sued by the producer, and it was ruled on five years later by the Supreme Court. They didn't give him equal time because he said John, the court said John Barber's reviews were of no public importance. And the line that he objected to the most, because I decimated the film, I said, but the sets are beautiful, but they've been more beautiful if they've been placed in front of the actors. Well, Time Magazine and Newsweek and everybody picked it up anyway. This is what I'm doing on television, and I get a call from a guy named George Slaughter. George Slaughter was the co-creator, but the owner of the original Laugh-In, Ronan Martin's Laugh-In. Oh, okay, yeah. yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was a really influential, very funny show in the 60s. America, American television, variety laugh shows, comedy shows. Uh-huh. Colgate Comedy Hour with Martin and Lewis, uh, Sid Caesar and your show chosen Laugh-In. Anyway, Lapin only lasted three years because Rowan and Martin became the stars, uh, and George Slaughter hated them and took them to court, and literally his ego and greed destroyed that particular show, but he had a deal to do four more specials with NBC. And he called me and asked if he could have the jokes that I did on the, on the news. I said, yes, you're going to have them all, and... Uh, and I'm, I'm the film critic for L.A. Magazine. I said, you can take any of those that you want. I did that for 10 years. He said, why don't you come on the show and be my critic at large? I'll pay you a minimum as a performer and a minimum as a writer. So myself, Digby Wolf, the actual creator of Real uh, uh, Laugh-In, and George Slaughter, myself, we write these four specials, which introduce Robin Williams. Anyway, one of the... Uh, one of the guests is going to be Frank Sinatra. None of these shows is ever taped in front of an audience. Every laugh is canned. Every bit of applause is canned. I knew Sinatra was coming, so I went and sat in the back of the studio. I'm 44 years of age at this time. Anyway, George Slaughter's on the stage with Digby Wolf holding pieces of paper. In comes Sinatra with three or four suits. And Francis is very, very, very tough. He looks at the stuff Slaughter handles and crumples and throws it on the floor, doesn't even hand it back, calls it crap. Who wrote this crap? Who wrote this crap? And George has no more jokes. So Digby hands him a sheet of paper. And the first joke is about uh, some guy in prison in New Jersey who's being auditioned by the Democrats to run for governor. And Sinatra loved the joke and all the other jokes. And then he said, who wrote this stuff? This is great. I'll do this. Diggy points to me sitting at the back. Sinatra looks up and and his index finger says, come here. And he says, come here, kid. I'm 44. I'm so nervous and excited. And I run down. Uh And do you remember the, do you remember the name Rex Reed? Yes. Rex. Yeah. Rex Reed was America's most popular critic in print. Yes. And he did a movie called My, he started in a movie called Myra Breckenridge. So when I get down in front of Sinatra, he looks at me, he said, hold it. You're the guy that writes for LA Magazine and you're on the six o'clock news with Tom Snyder. You're the movie critic guy. And I said, yes, sir. I'm known as the heterosexual Rex Reed. Uh-huh. Well, he howled. And then Digby says to him, well, John's got a comedy album called It's Stuff to be White with Lion Hooks by Dick Gregory. And he howls again. He said, get me a copy, kid. And I said, no, sir, I don't want you to hear it because the L.A. Times bombed it. And he said, good, that's all the more reason. Get it to me. I'm going to show it to Sandy. So he gives me his secretary's name, Dorothy, and his address at Foreman Avenue, uh, Formosa Studios. And I rushed that afternoon and delivered the album. I think I'm never going to see or hear from Sinatra again. Two days later, I get a hand-delivered letter. It is recreated in the book. It is framed, the only letter framed in my office. And he says, you are now mine, and we're going to do a lot of stuff together. And indeed, we were going to do a lot of stuff together. So it started out with my writing form. Now, people say, well, what can you write for Sinatra? You don't write music. 
I mean, he has buddies who write the music, really good parodies, too. I wrote either jokes or letters or tributes. Do you know the book by Kitty Kelly called His Way? It, uh, Kitty Kelly wrote a biography of Sinatra called His Way and quotes a letter to People magazine written by Sinatra. The author of that letter was yours truly. And whether I wrote a joke or a letter, I wrote the tribute to Hubert Humphreys when he was dying of cancer. He gave me 10 brand new $100 bills. And I, tr- I tried to tell him I'll do it for nothing. He said, I don't, don't do anything for nothing. You take it or you don't write. Wow. So I took it. And it was a great yeah. four years. And you can go to my site. When I had this feud, which I talk about, about Johnny Carson for years and years, the reason I had a feud with Carson is because I was really successful on Merv's show. And Johnny Carson never would put anybody on the show on his own. They had to become a star someplace else. Then he'd put them on and claim that he discovered them, as he did with Flip Wilson. Anyway, you saw me. They booked me on The Tonight Show, and it was June the 8th, 1968, the day they murdered Robert Kennedy. And I got into an argument about it. You cannot do a show. They just killed. And we had that feud for years. And Sinatra loved me to tell the stories. And when Sinatra took over the Tonight Show in 1977, guess what? I was the first person he had come on the show to do a stand-up. And if you go to my site, if you go to my site, you'll see the entire stand-up. And I must tell you, half of the jokes are as topical today as they were back in 1977. 77. Wow. Well, John, we have to wrap this up, but I want to thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. It has been a pleasure listening to your amazing stories, your history, your thoughts and and everything and and we're with you. Mm-hmm. We're totally with you on it. So thank you so much uh, well, for being you know, on our show. Thank you, thank you so much. I just love talk, talking to people about America and about Jim Garrison. Because there are three great American stories. The American Revolution, the Civil War, and Jim Garrison's story about his investigation into the murder of John Kennedy. It's like an unhappy ending, but a Frank Capra story. And thank you for letting me tell some of it on your wonderful show today. Very interesting. Yeah. He's definitely got some points of views. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. I I will I will give him that. But it was a it it was it was an interesting conversation to learn a lot. Yeah. About the news. So absolutely. Well we want to thank John Barber for coming on the show. And of course, we want to thank you guys for joining us again for another great week. Yes. And next week we have another great episode of What About Our Life with Chris and Will. And uh, you can follow us on Instagram at chris.ann.will. Of course. And you can go to our website. chrisandwill.com. Absolutely. Get all the new updates of what's to come and so much more. So we want to thank John Barber for coming on. We want to thank you for being on the show. And we want to remind you to, during all this stuff, to love yourself and the world will love you in return. Yes! Absolutely. But for now, guys, we have to go. Sounding off at our home in Orlando, Florida. Join us for another great episode for What About Our Life with Chris and Will. But for now, bye! Bye! Bye!